Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Hello, it's Cindy Howes. I host this podcast. Thank you for finding us. I'm so excited about our guest today, Richard Thompson. Before we get into that, a couple of ways uh, that you can keep in touch with us or support us. You can join our newsletter, which is the very best way to keep in touch with Basic Folk at our website, which is basicfolk.com. There you can also find links to social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can also rate and review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. You can check us out on the SiriusXM app. You can search Basic Folk on the app right now. Or if you would like to make a contribution, we are a listener-supported pod, and you can donate now at basicfolk.com slash donate. Okay, Richard Thompson, his new memoir, Bee's Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975, which just came out in paperback, is a page-turner of a read about a legend at the dawn of British folk rock. Thompson details his early days with Fairport Convention, one of the most influential folk bands of all time. He writes how they strive to be different and sought out songwriters like Joni Mitchell and Leonard Cohen while adapting a modern sound for traditional British folk songs, some that were over 500 years old. He recounts tragedy when the band suffered a huge loss, the 1969 car accident that killed their drummer Martin Lamble and Richard Thompson's girlfriend of just two weeks, Jeannie Franklin. He shares their first experiences in America, rolling around Los Angeles with the likes of John Bonham and Janis Joplin, and their triumphant debut at the Philadelphia Folk Festival. Richard Thompson was game to get into anything I threw at him, talking about experiencing such excruciating grief at a young age, what British fortitude means to him, did he ever really get to know his parents, being outwardly calm and inwardly chaotic. There's a chapter in the book where he details some session work he did in between the time he left Fairport Convention in 1971 and his solo work with his then-wife Linda Thompson. I had a blast looking up all these albums on YouTube, especially Lal and Mike Watterson's Bright Phoebus from 1972. The music is so fun, and it's very fun that Richard Thompson is playing on it. I highly recommend his memoir and hold out my hopes that there may be a part two 
in his future. I think there is much left to write. His days after the very public breakup with Linda, establishing himself as a solo act, and then coming back to work with his extended family in the group Thompson in the 2014 album Family. Richard's got a busy summer ahead of him with a couple of cruises and the 10th anniversary of his writing camp, Frets and Refrains. I'm grateful that he was able to make some time for us on Basic Folk. Let's take a listen to the namesake of his memoir. This is Bee's Wing from the 1994 album Mirror Blue. And then we'll get to our conversation with the legendary and fabulous Richard Thompson on Basic Folk. I was 19 when I came to town. They called it the summer of love. They were burning babies, burning flags, the hawks against the doves. I took a job in the steaming down on Cardrum Street. And I fell in love with a laundry girl who was working next to me. Well, she was a rare thing, fine as a bee's wing. So fine a breath of wind might blow her away. She was a lost child Well, she was running wild She said, as long as there's no price on love, I'll stay And you wouldn't want me any other way Richard Thompson, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for having me. I was wondering, um, so this is the second time that we've talked, uh, so it feels like we're friends now. Do you have like a nickname that people call you or are you just Richard? <laughs> people call me all sorts of things. Uh, <laughs> when I was in Fairport Convention, I was always called Henry. Uh, apparently I did some um, drug crazed uh, stunt in a human fly costume. Uh, so <laughs> I, I was, um, they, they still call me Henry from the old Fairport days. People call me RT sometimes, or they just call me Richard. They never call me Rich, thank God. Right. Although I wish I was. Or Rick. Rick, Rick I hate Rick. Yeah. My sister used to call me Rick and I really hated it. Uh. <laughs> but right. that was in Rick Nelson days, you know. Yeah, yeah. When it had more of a cachet. Okay, so let's talk about this book, Bee's Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, which I loved. In Thank the book, you. when you first start playing with Simon and Ashley, who then you would go on to found Fairport Convention, you would talk about how you were determined to be original and you didn't want to be predictable. So can you talk about this strong desire to be an individual back then and that need to not fit into a mold and how that maybe has followed you through your life? I think I always felt like that, you know, when I was a teenager and I started to read about art theory really more than anything else, um, read about people like John Cage. And I, and I thought, well, this is interesting stuff, you know, where um, one should not compromise one's artistic vision and then I suppose I really fell in with Simon and Ashley because they also seem to be uh, very smart people um, they're very intellectual and also seem to be um, not wanting to to be just another band and not wanting to be another UK blues band or soul band even though that would have led to our fame and fortune probably um, the way things turn out. Um, so I, I, I felt that I was attaching myself to the right people. And, you know, we were good friends as well, of course. Um, and uh, somehow that really never left any of us, I don't think. I, I think we all remained um, fairly idealistic about music. And uh, I think we still are to this day. Hmm. 
Uh, so when you're first describing Sandy Denny in the book, um, so Sandy could be a hard person to be around, and you talk about how you choose to remember her, like the hilarious moments. She was apparently very, very funny. So mm. how did her humor impact you back then, and how does it still make its way into your own humor? I think the nice thing about Fairport from the very beginning was that we all had a good sense of humor. Um, we didn't take ourselves too seriously. Um and uh, Sandy was at the kind of the looser end of, of that spectrum. You know, she, she, she was way freer, um, usually uh, a, a bit uh, a bit more tipsy than we were and um, <laughs> generally less inhibited. Uh, so I, I think we picked up a bit on that. And um, I think um, I, I, I think I think we all, you know, the old guys from Fairport really still have the same sense of humor um, uh, when I see them. Um, you know, Sandy in my memory has a wonderful sense of humor. She she's really funny in a, in a very sort of silly way, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, um, don't take yourself too seriously. Take the music seriously, mm -hmm. but don't take yourself too seriously. In the book, you're describing that back in the late '60s, the folk scene in London was very like male dominated. Um, mm. Did you ever see that having an impact on on Sandy? And how do you think that? Uh, that sense of like masculinity back then like impacted you um i didn't like it particularly um i kind of saw it as the way it was um and not much i could do about it but i did see people like sandy as pioneers um really uh, you know slowly slowly changing um the folk world to what it is today which is um a whole lot better i have to say um and Sandy's way of dealing with that was really uh, to try and keep up, I suppose, um, to, mm. to, to be as uh, hard drinking, hard smoking, hard swearing as as the men. Um, that, that was her kind of uh, her defense, I, I suppose, really. Um, uh, I don't know if there was another way that she could have operated. I, I, I have no idea. Yeah. Wow. When you were first exploring the sounds of Fairport Convention, you said, I felt connected to a history and we were starting to connect to a lineage that was ancient. What did that connection feel like, that like ancient connection that you were channeling through music? And how did it make you feel connected to the land, um, to your ancestors and to the history of England? Hmm. Well, it is a feeling. It's a thing that when you do it, you kind of get it. Uh, you sing an old song, and this may not happen to everybody, but it does happen to me. Uh, you sing an old song, and you become aware of um, the people who have sung it before you. Hmm. You may have learned it from somebody else. You may have learned it from a member of your family. Um, some songs may be passed down in your family, but but yet you become aware of, of all those people. Uh, you know, down the centuries in some cases. Um, you know, we, we were singing songs. It could be you know four or five hundred years old, um, substantially old songs. And you, you think of the generations that, that may have sung that down the years. Uh, and in, in the process of singing, of course, the, the songs get changed. Um, you know, verses get left out. Um, better lines come in. Um, the bad lines get kind of kind of winnowed away. Um, and it becomes a better song over the years. Uh, but there's a kind of a reverberation that happens. So there's, there's this reverberation down through history. And you, and you feel it when you sing it. And you, you feel the ancientness of the song. Hmm. And it doesn't make it any less valid. It doesn't it doesn't mean it's a thing of the past. It, it, it's very much another thing that's alive for you. And possibly if you're singing it to an audience, for the audience as well, it becomes this, this living thing, but at the same time, this ancient thing. 
Right. And there's, there's tremendous um, um, resonance mm-hmm. to that. It's a bit, bit like going going to see um, perhaps a Greek play that like something by Aristophanes or something. And, you know, it's something that, that's very, very old, thousands of years old. Uh, and if you're an actor in that play, um, you feel the old actors act, acting it as, as you were acting it. And, and you kind of feel the arena of the audience uh, as they would have seen it uh, and as you are seeing it now. It, it's um, it's a wonderful connection and it's a very, very deep feeling. Yeah. Oh, that's such a beautiful answer. Mm. There is a chapter where you talk about the really tragic car accident that killed your drummer, Martin Lamble, and your girlfriend, Jeannie Franklin. After the accident, you were all very young, uh, maybe barely 20 years old, and you all threw yourselves into a new project you describe yourselves as too fragile to actually deal with the grief head on. So how has your experience with grief evolved since then? I think when you have to deal with something when you are that young, I mean, but I think I was 20. I think, I think Simon Nickel was 19. Um, Martin was 18 when he died. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, we were young. We were young. Um, and it makes you grow up quickly, I think. Uh, it makes you mature quickly it it changes what you think about life um you you see life as a less permanent thing and i suppose uh among the many minuses about about that terrible situation i I suppose a plus is is that you learn for the future you you learn you, you learn what grief is you learn what tragedy is and you say okay this is a part of life that i have to deal with and maybe I have to deal with this on a, on a regular basis. Who knows? Um, and as you get older, of course, you, you lose more and more friends. Uh, you're much more exposed to, to, to grief um, all the time, really. Um, you, you seem to be endlessly mourning people, mourning friends. Mm. So I suppose, it, you know, it, it prepares you for life. I mean, it, it sounds kind of a negative answer, but I think that's, that's really what it does. Um, right. um, yeah. This is something... Um that I've been thinking about a lot uh, since I read about it in your book and then also we had a chance to talk about it previously and I've just been thinking about it and talking about it, um, about British fortitude, uh, because you also bring up um, that trait and that characteristic um, in that moment of grief, you said, with British fortitude we soldiered on. So when we first spoke about it, I asked you um, your relationship to it. And I was like, very surprised by your answer, but have just been kind of like sitting in it and thinking about it. So um, could you give, give like a little bit of an explanation of what British fortitude is and what's your, what's been your relationship to it? I think of it as something that I inherited perhaps from, from my parents, from the World War II generation, maybe, but it does go back further than that. Uh, it goes definitely goes back to the early Victorians and the British Empire. You know, in, in the British Empire, um, which was kind of run on a shoestring, you know, the, the huge amounts of the world were, were supposedly under British rule, and, and and they'd ruled it with about three gunboats, you know, and, and um, uh, very little else. So, so that they, and you know, that people people were thrown into these. Um, Terrible climates, right? You know, terrible, you know, hot climates, or where, where they're wearing, you know, classic Victorian uncomfortable clothes, uh, and you, you kind of had to sort of get on with it. You know, you had to do your duty. Um, you, you had to, um, you know, serve the Queen basically, and um, and uh, and not show um, any displeasure or discomfort. 
and and also to, to be courageous you know this is an, an, another thing you know you, you weren't expected to uh to run away or anything like like that um you know the ship was sinking yet you stood on the ship as it sank you know the women and children could get into the lifeboats but if, if you were a proper you know victorian chap you, you just stood there on the deck as the ship sank and uh and that was your lot you know that, that was your your place in life and in the empire um as you did your duty you know as lord nelson said you know his, his dying breath was a thank god i've done my duty um so, so it was all about that so, so that filtered down into world war Two, where you know our parents made um great sacrifices um against fascism against nazism and um and they showed great fortitude you know my father and my mother both were very courageous during the war um and um and that becomes something that's almost unspoken. It just it gets handed down to you. And, and, and so you have to show fortitude. You, you have to show courage in those situations. So we didn't even question, you know, after the accident, we didn't even say, well, you know, where's my therapy? You know, where's my counsellor? Um, no such thing really existed. Or if it did exist, we didn't know about it. So we just, um, in the style of World War II, we just, you know, soldiered on. We just said, okay, we just have to get on with it. And uh, the consequence of that was um, we had a difficult time and, and we didn't really understand um, what was happening to us. We didn't understand really what, what, what the grief was doing to us. Mm-hmm. And subsequently, we made some bad decisions for the next couple of years. Uh, we were in a state of shock, I think, for the next couple of years sure yeah um and uh at some point i'm sure we recovered but uh maybe not fully ever yeah yeah we were talking about how british fortitude has since uh especially with younger generations has seemingly like gone out of fashion and we talked about like as an american like the best example i can think of is the queen when princess diana died and she got a lot of criticism for not mm. being more emotional about it. Yeah, um, yeah. This is a new trait in in, in British culture, um, which is to show more public emotion. Um, but, you know, Princess Diana was, you know, the absolute tipping point of that, um, where uh, people were being positively, um, you know, um, Catholic, if you like, in in their. Uh, public lamentation uh, for, for Princess Diana, uh, and the Queen had to kind of uh, reboot herself, if you like. You know, she, she, she had to reboot the royal family into mm-hmm. you know royal family two point zero. You know, had to had to become a new thing, a different thing, a, a more caring, publicly caring, publicly showing emotion thing, uh, which had never happened before. Working on your next album, Liege and Leaf, which was released in December of 1969, you were talking about trying to strike a balance between modern and traditional, and you said some of the songs sounded too bucolic. What did those songs sound like that didn't work, and then how would you grow as a band when discovering like those duds? Um, I think uh... We were trying to build a bridge between really British traditional music and contemporary music, i.e. rock and roll, if you like. Some stuff fit and some stuff didn't fit, uh, really. It, it, it was that basic. Uh, we, we found the stuff that worked was sometimes, uh, you know, the big ballads, 
um, with, with lots of verses um, uh, and lots of very um, lively imagery and um, good stories like good murder stories, good um, su supernatural stories. Uh, and the stuff for me that didn't work was really the, the more pastoral music, of which there is a lot. Mm -hmm. um, it just seemed out of step, really, with um, contemporary life for me. Anyway, I, I, you know, singing about the, the banks of the sweet primroses. Um, it, it wasn't quite Black Sabbath, you know. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> a, a bit removed from that. So uh, yes, so I think that some of those songs fell by the wayside, and probably just as well. There's a part in the book where you talk about having to sell a guitar if you wanted to like buy a new one. This is like back in 1970. So back then, what was the process like for you when you were finally able to buy and keep guitars? And what has your experience or relationship with buying guitars changed over the years? I think I still feel um, somewhere that I don't deserve too many guitars. I don't know why I feel that, but but I do. So uh, you know, I, when I, if I say I've got twenty guitars, that might sound like a lot, but you know, I, I've got I've got four I keep in the UK, and and I've got some I've got in storage for going on the road. You know, so, so there, there's not that many really. We're not talking Keith Richard numbers here. Um, How many does will, he have? He's probably got you know a couple of hundred, maybe three hundred. Mm. Um, I've, got, I've got I've got a cousin who's got two hundred and fifty guitars. Um, and he's not even a musician. <laughs> professional musician um my dear friend david linney's got got a couple of hundred um instruments anyway um i, I just like to think if, if i'm going to own them then i have to play them uh, i don't like like them sitting neglected uh in a case for years so if i haven't played something for, for uh, several years I, I would think about um selling it or passing it on to someone else nice uh, in the book, you say, we weren't as sexy as the Stones or lovable and goofy as Herman's Hermits. And you, Fairport Convention, um, tried some like rock and roll moves at a show one night and you all hated it on stage, but the crowd loved it. Uh, but you never did it again. Fairport always were their authentic selves. So for you, like, where was the struggle in selling your real selves, so to speak, on stage? And how are your live performances different now? Um, and like, how have they evolved? <laughs> I was reading uh, Levon Helm's uh, biography, uh, the, the, the drummer with the band. And, and he said, um, he said, we were always playing for ourselves. We were never a, a band that really looked that much at the audience, stood at the front of the stage, you know, face forwards. Um, we were always kind of facing sideways, looking at each other. Um, and I think Fairport were a bit like that as well. Um, we were really much more interested in what each other were doing. And if the audience liked it, well, that was fine, you know. Um, but in 1967, you didn't have to sell yourself in that way, you know. Uh, you know, Pink Floyd uh, weren't a, a band that was, um, you know, asking asking the, the crowd to clap along or anything like that. You know, it wasn't Las Vegas. You know, it, it was very psychedelic and there was a light show going on. That's the kind of era, really, that, that we came out of. Um, I'm not sure my attitude has changed that much. I, I, I'm aware that at a certain point when I was playing solo, but probably in the 1980s, um, and I'm opening for, for bands, you know, as, as a solo artist, I'm, I'm opening for bands like Crowded House. And um, I find myself, you know, playing to an audience of, of like 2,000 teenage girls. 
And I think, okay, now what do I do? You know, this is going to be an absolute disaster. So I thought, well, I'm going to borrow the, the personas of a couple of, of, of other musicians I know, uh, you know, uh, particularly um, Pat Donaldson and Danny Thompson, you know, a couple of, of kind of loud um, uh, party-going um, musicians. Um, and, and I'll attack the audience because it's the only way I'm going to get through this. So, so I kind of shout at the audience and I, and I cajole the audience and it kind of worked. And um, I, I went down much better than if I just stood there and said nothing. So I thought, well, this is this is interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, so I started to apply that a lot more to solo shows. Uh, you know, band shows, I never quite felt the need to go that far because you have the power of electricity to, to get you over the audience. Um, so, I, you know, I probably pay more attention to the audience these days and, and I'm probably a bit more aware of a certain amount of stagecraft, but we never um, lapse into um, real um, Las Vegas moves and, and um, you know, clap-alongs and... Any Van Morrison kicks? Sing-along. Van Morrison kicks. Um, well, I leave that to him. I, I think he's, <laughs> he's the best of that. He, yeah, he's a, a, a very definitive kicker, and I think yes. uh, we should give him space. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's a part in the book where you are with Peggy and John Bonham and Janis Joplin drinking all night, and it sounds absolutely wild. On substance abuse in those days, how do you look back on it now versus what you were thinking about it then? <laughs> when you're, um, you know, 20s, certainly as a teenager, you know, you feel a bit immortal and you, you feel that, that drugs... And the warnings about drugs don't really apply to you. So, you know, you indulge yourself. Um, and unsurprisingly, you can recover from, from bouts of whatever, you know, drinking drugs, you know, and, and you think, okay, well, I really actually am immortal. Um, and it's later that it gets you. I mean, it, it's later where you think, uh oh, um, I'm going to die or I'm going to quit. And many, many musicians get, get to that point. And we know the ones who chose to carry on. And we know the ones who, who stopped. Um, most musicians I know, most musicians I work with um, are basically sober. Basically sober. Uh, they, mm. they don't touch anything. And the ones who do touch something, they, 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 they don't touch it very much. Mm. And they, they don't touch it when they're working. That's just the way life is. You know, it's a very easy world in which to destroy yourself. Mm. And there are many examples, many examples. And if you don't deliberately do it yourself, then someone will, will you know, give you an overdose of something because they, they think it's good for you. You know, Brian Wilson and, and Sid Barrett and, you know, that whole bunch of people, Peter Green, you know, who, who got, um, you know, spiked by well-wishers, thinking that, that, they, that they needed, you know, this, this drug or that drug. So uh, yeah, it's a dangerous it's a dangerous profession actually. Now I think about it. Wow. Fairport played at the Philadelphia Folk Festival, and when that happened, um, it, you said we found our target American audience versus all the time you're spending in Los Angeles, and it seems to be such a distinguished line between the folk crowd and the rock crowd in America. So why do you think there was a better reception in the northeastern part of the United States? I think familiarity, um, as you suggest, I think they were more aware of, uh, of traditions in music. Um, 
if you're at a festival with people like Doc Watson, you know, who's singing songs that he learned in his family, songs from the, from the Appalachian Mountains, um, uh, that music goes back all the way back to Europe, uh, you know, it goes back hundreds of years. Um, so that audience is aware of tradition. So in Fairport, they could see the link, I think, between um, what we were singing mm-hmm. and the volume at which we were playing it. They could, they could see that as just another part of the tradition. And when we started to play dance tunes, so we started to play jigs and reels, um, like very loud, um, with rock and roll um, sensibility, then I think uh, people understood what that was, although they'd never heard it in that way before. And, and they responded. I know you say that you weren't paying very much attention to the audiences back then, but do you have a sense of like what they would do in L.A.? in the audience versus what they're doing at the Philly Folk Festival? Are like people paying more attention? Are they dancing? Are they, you know, making direct eye contact with you? Uh, in Philadelphia, they, they were definitely um, paying attention uh, and they were dancing, abso- absolutely dancing. The, the entire crowd was dancing, uh, which was amazing. I think in, in, in LA, um, it's always a slightly more cynical crowd um no one shows up on time (laughs) it's the usual stuff yeah Yeah. (laughs) um but but i think they were they were they were appreciative i I mean they were very appreciative but uh they didn't quite get it in the same way um you know at that time in los angeles it was the beginning of things like country rock you know so it's linda ronstadt the eagles were just getting started uh jackson brown was just getting started Mm-hmm. So there's, there's this whole uh, vein of um, Los Angeles music, um, singer-songwriterish music that we, that was uh, just kicking off, and I think we were really um, a bit left field, uh, a bit um, out on on the extreme, really, uh, to be accepted by that particular crowd. At one point, you were inspired to go minimalist thanks to seeing John Cage's apartment. And you said you like got the basics down, but there would always be a cupboard somewhere stuffed with junk. And you said, I saw this as a metaphor for my life, outwardly calm and ordered, but inwardly tangled and chaotic. Um, where do you think those characteristics came from and how do you relate to that now? I think I've always had a problem calming my mind down, you know, stopping my mind running at 100 miles an hour. Um, and it's been a lifetime, you know, it's been a lifetime. Uh, but I think I'm better now at being uh, mentally calm. And if you're mentally calm, then you are outwardly calm. And uh, there are less surprises in life uh, be- because you're kind of stable and ready for them. Uh, you know, when your life is chaotic, that then uh, you interact with the world in a, in a chaotic way and, and chaotic things seem to happen to you. Um, it's, it's almost as if uh, you know, you're um, you know, like a kung fu expert or something, uh, and, and you can slow down whatever's coming towards you. Yeah, you, you can slow down that bullet, uh, and I actually have time to to, uh, to deflect it because you're you're operating at a different speed um, than the world. So I just try to slow the world down, really, uh, slow my brain down, and everything seems to get better. Hooray! <laughs> what does that look like in practice? What does it look like? Um, I hope it looks normal. I hope, I hope it looks like I'm just walking down the street, same as everybody else. 
rather than you know traveling very 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 slowly um yeah. <laughs> uh yeah it should look normal <laughs> i'm think i've been thinking about that recently and trying to like make like not in a bad way but sort of like make my world smaller like use my phone less and not worry about looking at social media and just sort of like taking in what's in front of me um but it definitely is like a practice that i have to keep up hopefully mm, it looks normal i think so well. someone very wise said uh relax the mind and learn to swim hmm. <laughs> on leaving fairport convention how did you have the foresight and courage to leave? How was it an unusual move for you? And how did it change the way you make decisions for yourself? Um, I'm unaware of having any courage in that situation whatsoever. Uh, it was a real, um, it, it was like a stomach thing. You know, I, I felt it in my stomach, but I just had to get out. Um, I couldn't take it anymore. I, I don't know why. Um, I think I was just burned out, really. Mm -hmm. Burned out from being on the road, burned out from having responsibilities of other people. And I just thought, well, I, if I do this on my own for a while, maybe I can figure something out. Maybe I, I can carve out a career do, doing something. And I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. Um, I figured I could always get a job as a guitar player uh, in somebody's band, and that would do for the time being. But I, I really wanted to write songs. I wanted to write, uh, I suppose, weirder songs. Um, I was interested by the songs that Bob Dylan wrote for what became the Basement Tapes, where he's writing these, these kind of surreal songs. And he said, um, he, he said, you know, American folk music is surreal. He, he said, there's weird stuff in there. And I'm, I'm just a part of that tradition. And, and I thought, well, you know, British folk music is weird too. I mean, it's weird stuff. Um, and I should be reflecting some of that um, in, in what I write. So, so I was just writing weird songs and I couldn't see where they fit. They didn't fit with Fairport particularly. So, so I thought, well, you know, I'll just, um, I'll write these songs. And at some point I'll sit down and I'll make an album. And we'll see what this stuff really is. I just didn't have a handle on it at all, really. Hmm. You talk about being around your parents as a young adult when you were in your early 20s, and you said, I wasn't at the point where I was comfortable to be around them, and I thought I knew about life better than they did. How did your relationship with your parents as adults finally get comfortable? I'm not sure my relationship with my father ever got comfortable. It really didn't, um, ever. Um, so that was always a, um, a problem. Um, with my mother, um, my, I had a fine relationship. After about the age of 30, I, I finally realized that, uh, who my mother was and um, how wonderful she was, actually. Um, and I, I think, I think um, spending time with my sister helped as well, it helped me to understand my, my parents. Um, mm. But uh, you know, growing up was always issues for me. It was always hard for me um, in various ways. So. Um, I think I, I laid most of the ghosts to rest at some point. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering also if your, like how your relationship with your parents, with your dad informed the way that you relate to your own kids. Uh, I, th I think someone told me quite early on when I was a young parent, um, 
and saw who I was, and they, they said, don't turn into your father. And, and it shocked me, because I thought, well, I'd never be like my father, surely. Sure. You, know, yeah. you know, I don't I don't like my father particularly. You know, why would I be like him? But he said, you know, well, stop doing the same things. Mm. And he was right, and, and that was an early warning. And uh, hopefully, uh, since then, I, I was compassionate to my kids and, and, uh, and, and a good father. I don't know. I hope so. After Fairport Convention, you were doing a lot of session work, and you reflect in the book that you're glad that you spent years in a band and a couple of years being a guitar player for hire because it made you a better band leader. So what do you think makes a good band leader, and how easy is it for you to transition from one position to another? I think it helps if you've been um, a musician for hire. Um, if you've worked in other people's bands, if you've worked on other people's sessions, uh, you appreciate what that life is and how hard that can be sometimes and how unrewarding it can be and how no one, no one says, thanks, you did a great job. Um, and uh, so when you know, I started to, to have my own bands and I started to run sessions, um, I was always very appreciative, appreciative, excuse me, of the uh, musicians involved, and uh, and I think that's important. Um, as we know, not everyone is a, is a kind, tender, loving band leader, um, and some artists uh, don't particularly re relate to their musicians. Um, uh, I, I, I could mention one. Um, uh, a uh, great guitar player, um, legendary guitar player, who was playing in the band of a, a very famous rock and roll singer. And and I said, well, um, you know, um, you've been playing with him now for a couple of years. So, you know, what's he like? And he said, well, I've never met him. I said, hey, you've never, you've never met mm -hmm. him? But you're on stage with him, like, you know, all the time. He said, I know, but, you know, I, I go on stage and then he comes on later and then, then he goes off be before we finished. <laughs> And he's gone, you know, he's in the limo and he's gone and, and wow. I've never met him. And I said, well, that's, that's the strangest thing. So, um, you know, there's all kinds of levels and, and, and ways that, that, uh, you know, band leaders and bands relate to each other. But, uh, you know, I, I hope I'm one of the more compassionate band leaders out there. Who's the best band leader you've ever had? Ooh, ooh. Uh, hmm. Don't know. I mean, if you think of him as a band leader, although it wasn't strictly that way, uh, Ashley Hutchings in, in Fairport was a, a, a very good band leader. Um, mm -hmm. But it was a bit more democratic than that. Mm -hmm. When you got into religion, into Sufism, and started praying, you gave up drinking, and it seems like that went really well for you immediately. <laughs> then you talked about how it took a year or two to realize that you were not, not part of a superior club, but that everyone was on a journey and had struggles, which I think, I mean, that's definitely something that I've realized throughout the course of my life. But I'm wondering, how did that make you feel that like everyone was struggling? Did it make you feel less alone? Did it make you feel less special? It made me feel more human. That's all. Um, it's it, it's it's a good human characteristic to recognise um, what other people go through. You know, it's empathy, sympathy. Um, you can you can say, oh, you know, that that guy's, you know, he's a wino. He's out on the street. You know, um, you know, well, what a terrible life he leads. But but you know, but but he is on a journey of some sort. You know, I don't know which way he's going. 
but if he's on a, he is on a journey and um you know sometimes like what you think of as boring people like, like people with you know two kids and the nice suburban home and it's all going terribly well and everything but but you know they're on a journey as well and and um you know tragedy can touch their lives um and joy can touch their lives uh and whatever you do as a spiritual practice whatever you you think um is good for you uh it's all fine and all, all well and good but um you know you're not the only one traveling everyone's traveling you say that you were coming under fire in your Islam community for playing rock and roll, like regardless of the fact that the music wasn't dark, like you weren't playing Black Sabbath. Mm -hmm. um, you obviously kept playing. So can you talk more about that struggle to follow your faith while doing something they disapprove of that you love? Yeah, um, the very liberal elements in, in the whole world of Islam. It's, it's a lot of countries. It, it, it's a big area, and um, there are all kind of factions in that. So, so, so sometimes they love music. Uh, sometimes they're a bit puritanical about music, um, you know, like, like Saudi Arabia, maybe, uh, Pakistan sometimes. Um, and you just have to kind of deal with that. Uh, sometimes you get a flag for it. Um, in, in our own community, but back in the 70s, um, I think people felt that they were making some sacrifice and I should be making some sacrifice too, um, in a sort of puritanical mindset, really. Mm -hmm. and, 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 I, and I thought, well, you know, music's like breathing. You know, music is just joy. Uh, and it's a wonderful thing. Why, why should you shut yourself off from, 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 from that joyousness? Um, and uh, why should you make your life a prison? I'm sure that God never intended anyone to use religion as a prison it, it should always be a joyous thing and, and something that opens you up rather than represses you so i i, I it took me a little while to figure it out but eventually i i thought well you know music's music and i'll play music and, and enjoy it in the book you say that you think we write songs for pleasure and to understand ourselves and decode life. So can you speak to what it's like for you to discover something about yourself because you've written it into song? Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure it's something that you would ever sit down deliberately to do. Um, I'm not sure that that's a possible process, really. You, know, you, you sit down and you write a story or you write about other people or you write because you like the sound of the words or, or you, you like the fact that a certain couplet rhymes, you know, um, that's what gets you started anyway on a song. Um, but sometimes you just get these little flashes uh, or where you finish a song, you say, ah, oh, okay, that, that, that's what that's about. You, you, you didn't even know what it was about. It's like a surprise. Yeah, it's a surprise. And, and those, those are the wonderful moments is, is where you write something that, that, that surprises you. It's a good song when, you weren't expecting the end or you weren't expecting first two or something, something comes along and you think, wow, that's great. And you almost feel that, that it doesn't come from you. It comes from somewhere else. It comes from outside of you and you manage to pull it in and um, be a channel for it, be, be a conduit for it. You talk about how a songwriter takes himself back every time he plays before an audience to render parts of his catalog. And it's strange to have this constant reminder of where you came from. So for you, how has revisiting your past self night after night during live concerts help you better understand the you of the past? <laughs> well, I think it does. I, I think you see your naivety. 
and you see your immaturity and you, you see where your mindset was at the times that those songs were written. Um, I, I was just speaking to, to a wonderful Russian songwriter, Boris uh, Grabenchikov, um, who's now ex exiled uh, in, in London uh, for speaking his mind about the Ukraine war. And, um, and he, he was saying, um, you know, his songs, are, they're, like, they're like public ownership now. Um, you know, he wrote them, but they're, they're gone from him. The, the people now own them, people out there. You, you couldn't change a verse because people would complain. You know, they say, no, this is the way it goes. So you kind of hand that stuff off, you know. So those old songs, um, they're, they're, they're public um, property, really. Mm. I, I, and I'll grab it back to sing it sometimes in a concert. I'll, I'll say, okay, this is mine for now. And then I'll say, okay, well, that's, it's yours again, you know. You mentioned a couple times in the book and one time in your conversation with Elvis Costello, which is um, in a conversation that's included in the new paperback, you were talking about that the older generation, like Jimmy Page, The Who, The Beatles, The Stones, were only five years older than you and Fairport Convention. So can you talk about why that five-year difference is so crucial? Hmm. It seems to be basically a generation in, in popular music or, or even in folk music, maybe less so in folk music. Uh, and maybe that's the time it takes for, you know, a band like the Kinks to go from being, you know, our neighbors in, in Muswell Hill in North London uh, in sort of 62, um, playing at the local youth club to having a string of hits and then moving somewhere else, you know, that, that they move out of the old neighborhood, you know, that they move up, that, that they go to Chelsea, they go to Richmond, you know, they go somewhere classier. Same with the Stones, you know, that, that, that's how long it takes for them to, um, to become, if you like, stars, you know, uh, and uh, move in a different circle. For the Beatles to, you know, for, for Paul McCartney to be living with, with, with Jane Asher and, and uh, going to, you know, nice art galleries in the evenings and, and hanging out with, um, you know, arty, trendy people. Um, maybe that's the five years where you, they, you, they just move up a level and, and mm -hmm. you lose any possible contact with them. Uh, but it is five years. And, it, you know, I sort of feel that the Stones, the Beatles were at the epicenter of what happened in London uh, in, in the earlier 60s. Um, I thought I London was a kind of epicenter of music and fashion mm. at that time, you know, swinging London and all that stuff. Uh, and we were just a little bit later, you know, the psychedelic generation, the sort of Pink Floyds, et cetera, mm. were just that much later. Maybe it was only four years, but maybe it was five years. <laughs> um, you know, and, and then after, after that, what's next? You know, um, you know, prog rock, glam rock. And then after that, you've got another generation, which is punk. I mean, you, you see, you've got all these generations that are just coming yeah, one after another. Five years. Yeah, after punk, I, I've, I, I, I couldn't tell you. But, you um, fell anyway. off, yeah. You're done. <laughs> I stopped you paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also wondering if um, you've ever experienced, like, the. it seems like the music industry changes every five years as well. So, like, mm -hmm. what was working for Jimmy Page and the Beatles and the Stones, if, you know, the people in the industry tried to apply that to people of your generation – and it mm -hmm. didn't work and you know so on and so forth like that and what what your thoughts might be about that 
Yeah, I think it's very true as well. Um, I was aware, you know, in 1967, when we were getting signed, um, that the floodgates were open, that the music industry didn't have a clue what was happening in the psychedelic underground London scene. So they signed everybody. Uh, and they were clamoring, they were climbing over each other to sign everybody. So, uh, you know, the best bands and the worst bands all got signed. Um, and thankfully, we migrated to Island Records, which was a very hip label at the time, and that was the place to be. Um, but, uh, you know, there just seems to be times in history where that seems to happen. Um, and punk was another example of that, really, um, where record companies, again, um, were losing out to the independent labels who, who were signing the Sex Pistols and, and, and the, the Buzzcocks and, and, the, and the Damned and everything. Uh, but, but in the same movement, um, you had Elvis, Elvis Costello coming in, you had the Pretenders coming in, um, neither of which were really punk, as far as I was concerned. Great bands like Squeeze, so Squeeze weren't really a punk band. They were just great, great musicians. Like punk adjacent. Yeah, punk adjacent. There you go. Lovely phrase. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, when you get those times, um, a lot of good music comes through. And sometimes when you don't get those times, uh, a lot of good music doesn't get signed and, and kind of disappears. Um, and it's all about whether the record company is chasing the market or dominating the market. And um, more and more and more and more and more, since the 90s, I'd say that record companies had figured out a format of, of how to be successful. And it was kind of cynical format. And uh, it worked for them that they made lots and lots of money. Um, a lot of good music uh, died in that period because of the cynical nature of the music business. You know, now um, record companies, again, very cynically, um, you know, own big chunks of people like Spotify mm -hmm. and keep the, the whole streaming thing um, unprofitable for musicians. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a different world now. It's a very, very different world. The world of streaming has changed everything, mm -hmm. everything. It, you know, your intellectual property is in the toilet, basically. Yeah, it's a different world. I, I almost prefer the world of uh, large, greedy record companies in, in the 60s, um, <laughs> you know, but because at least you, you knew where you were. You knew a bit you were being ripped off, but it was worth it. And now you do things like... <laughs> The Richard Thompson Rhine River Cruise and the Richard Thompson Danube River Cruise. Uh, also, you're celebrating 10 years of your music camp, Frets and Refrains, this July. Um, mm. These types of events, like high-end trips for music fans, seem to be pretty common now, where in lieu of like a traditional concert, you're creating this like once-in-a-lifetime experience what can you say about creating a trip like that and how do you like it differently than traditional touring? Um, I like traditional touring, best of all. Um, if someone says, do you want to go on a river cruise down the Rhine or the Danube? Um, I think, wow, um, that's great. I, in fact, I was thinking of doing that anyway, <laughs> just, just as a member of the public. But if you're yeah. able to pay me to, to go, go on this thing and uh, you know, and go to Bucharest and, and uh, Vienna and, and God knows where, then gosh, thanks very much indeed. Um, as you say, it's high end. Um, and it seems to be a generational thing. You know, it, it's for, you know, older people who can afford it to, to, to go on these things. Um, and it's a small audience. And you are kind of cheek by jowl, jowl with the audience. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. You know, South Africa Safari, which I'm doing in November, 
um, maybe that's 20 people. So you're going to get to know those 20 people very well. It's, it's a different way of, of considering an audience. But it's the same thing. I mean, you know, it, it's like it's like, like what cruises used to be. You know, um, you know, older people like to go on the cruise because they get to visit exotic places and they get a bit of sunshine and, and they love the buffet. You know, that, that's, that's basically what it is. So I mean, I mean, for me, it, it's um, it's kind of a different variety of things. I, I'm I'm quite excited about the, the, the river cruises. Um, I just did a folk festival in Ibiza, which is like a British folk festival, but they they just took the audience to um, the sunshine, as opposed to having a festival in the rain in Britain. Uh, they mm-hmm. they just moved the whole thing. And I thought, well, this is a great idea. Mm-hmm. I'm very happy about that. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's all part of, uh, of of the variety of. Um, present day um touring it's especially for i suppose older artists you know i hate to think of myself as an older artist though that's a bit sad anyway never mind <laughs> um before i let you go will you do the lightning round uh certainly i hope i do a right. job this time yes okay okay well i have whole new questions okay so here we go what's a song that makes you cry every time Woo. okay um time i'd probably say um uh adieu adieu uh it's a traditional song um uh, also known as well a day uh or willow day uh various titles but it's, it's a just a perfect the perfect folk song who's your guitar hero probably martin carthy who is uh like somebody famous that you unabashedly love first of all, unabashedly love uh carrie grant what is one product you cannot live without? These days, uh, computer. What's your favorite musical? Oklahoma. I mean, West Side Story for the last one. <laughs> Can I change my mind? <laughs> okay. <laughs> West Side Story is the greatest, the greatest musical. What's a recent movie that you saw that you loved? What's a movie I saw recently and loved? Yeah. Uh, um, um, um. Ooh, gosh. Um, movies, movies, movies. Uh, I can't remember what it was called. Uh, it had uh, Jim Broadbent and uh, Judy Dench in it. It was really, really, really good. No, sorry, and, uh, Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren and Jim Broadbent. And it was about the guy who... Um, he steals um, the, the portrait of the Duke of Wellington from the National Gallery. It's a true story. Is it called The Duke? It's called The Duke. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah. And it was, uh, it was wonderful. So well acted and such an interesting story. How do you take your tea? Uh, I take my tea uh, milk in first, kind of working class style. Would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? Fly. What is your most respectful quarantine activity? (laughs) Quarantine activity, uh, keeping myself to myself. (laughs) Okay, this is the last one. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? probably a rainforest uh somewhere in costa rica nice all right that's it that's the lightning round thank you so much for talking to me i really enjoyed this book uh i hope people go out and read it as uh, a person a very organized person i thought the way that the paragraphs were all laid out and the chapters ended at the end of a page was very nice i don't know if you had anything to do with it but Big fan of that. Some, but not all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I hope you write more books because I will be reading them all. 
questions. And thank, thank you, you very much, Richard, for, for being here. I really appreciate our conversation. Thank you, Cindy. My pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by John Nungesser. Alex Stanton composes our music. You can find Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts at the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find us on the SiriusXM app by searching Basic Folk, or you can find us at our website, basicfolk.com. Thanks again for checking out the show today. Hope you enjoyed it and hope you'll be back. Tell a friend we love you. Okay, talk to you next time. Bye.